Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. We are continuing in our series going through the book of 1 John. This is the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we are looking at the letter of 1 John. And the reason we're looking at it is because the dominant theme in 1 John is love. And love is, you know, it's one of those words that is so broad and it's used in a variety of ways. And I think the popular usage in our culture when people say love uh, is to understand love as a sentiment or as a feeling. But what I like about John is he, uh, he seems to talk about love as something that's much more concrete than that and something that's actually rooted in our actions and what we do. Now, when I introduced the series two weeks ago, uh, I talked about this ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. And I mean, to be clear, Gnosticism is uh, a heresy that's dated after this le letter was written. Uh, so what we see in this community is not Gnosticism, but scholars think that maybe there are these pre-Gnostic strands of thinking that were starting to be taught uh, and infiltrated this community. So for example, Gnosticism said that the material created world was in opposition to the material spiritual world. And therefore the material world had to be evil while the spiritual world had to be pure. And so some of that thinking may have been here because uh, there's this uh, sectarian community that broke away from this church. And one of the things that they believed was Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that he wasn't this fully embodied human being. And that's why uh, in the previous passage, John makes it a point to say, he saw Jesus with his own eyes and touched Jesus with his own hands. And basically, it's to emphasize Jesus really did come in the flesh as a fully embodied human being. Now, I think that has some impact in terms of how we understand love, because uh, love also should be expressed in the flesh as embodied human beings. In other words, we can't just reduce love to this internal sentiment that we feel towards others and consider that form of love to be a pure expression of love, but rather love should also be outwardly expressed from one embodied person to another embodied person. And that's why I think First John helps us balance maybe the sentimental expressions of love that's so popular in our culture with the practical expression of it. Now, I think most of you will think this is obvious, but love is incredibly important as it relates to our Christian faith. Why is it so important? I think love is actually what makes Christianity real to us. Otherwise, we end up becoming hypocrites. Now, that word hypocrite has its origins in a Greek word that was used for an actor. And I think what it's trying to get across is a, is a hypocrite is a person who is performing a part rather than actually living it. Christians can be hypocrites too when faith becomes performative rather than something that is genuinely lived out. Now, I think we all probably hate hypocrisy, and especially if you come from an honor-shame culture where all the bad things uh, were hidden in order to preserve honor and avoid shame, uh, then maybe you've seen 
uh, the hypocrisy of uh, certain people, uh, at least when it comes to the genuineness of Christian faith. So in the interest of authenticity, uh, you might just be open about everything. And I do think that's a step forward, uh, but that's not necessarily the direction or the ultimate direction that John is leading us. You know, we could avoid hypocrisy by just admitting that we're the worst people and, uh, and just kind of stop there, but that's a little bit too easy. What John is doing is he is pointing us, uh, he's telling us to avoid hypocrisy by actually walking in the light and loving one another in these practical and sacrificial and active ways. And I think with social media, there is probably a greater temptation to be performative rather than genuine. Uh, you know, anytime you have some kind of platform or if you're uh, a Christian with a public, uh, I guess, uh, where you have to kind of display your faith in a public setting, which by the way is like Christian leaders and pastors, there, there probably is a temptation to be more performative than uh, really genuine. And, uh, you know, that's not to say if you post something on social media, it's necessarily performative, but, you know, Jimmy Kimmel was talking about activism once and he said social media activism is literally the least you can do. And he's making a joke about it. I think that's kind of true. The problem is uh, nobody will see uh, genuine acts of love, which is not really a problem if you are doing it out of a genuine sense of because you're walking in the light and because you have this vertical fellowship with God. It only becomes a problem if your acts of love are performative or if you're using your faith as a way to be performative. So the way to avoid uh, hypocrisy or performative faith is by actually doing the hard work of love. Now in our passage, John is continuing to refute some of the things that people in this sect were saying. And you can tell that by the phrase, right, if we say, so when he says, if we say, I think he's uh, refuting some of the uh, teachings, the wrong teachings that were going around from the sect. And so uh, what I'm basically going to do today is I'm going to loosely structure the sermon around those sayings and uh, look at John's response to some of those things. Uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, I used to volunteer uh, and speak a lot for these youth retreats. And I would volunteer as like a teacher or a counselor. Uh, and I remember I was leading this group of 11th graders, and one of the things that they were always struggling with was this topic of assurance. And they would say things like, you know, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know that my faith is really genuine? And I think they're coming from this place where uh, they had all these emotional experiences, and uh, they would answer like these altar calls and raise their hands and uh, all those kinds of things. But then after the emotion died down, uh, they kind of went back to their old way of life, and that created a lot of uncertainty for them. And I, I think this is actually a question that a lot of people uh, have asked, even throughout history, in some shape or some form. Uh, I know Martin Luther wrestled with this question, and the way that question was resolved for him is when he read Paul's writings, and he read about this doctrine called justification by faith alone. So on the one hand, it is right to say that uh, to someone who asks how, they know, how do you know you are saved, uh, to say this, you are saved by grace through faith. You are saved because of the work of Jesus Christ and uh, his work alone. And salvation is not something that you can achieve because ultimately it is a gift from God. Um, those, all those things are true, and those are some of the things that Paul's letter uh, writes about. Uh, on the other hand, the Bible is more than just what Paul says, and there is more to say than just that. So, for example, in James, he talks about how faith without works is a dead faith. 
And so how we live out and practice our faith is not something that's inconsequential, but it actually matters a lot. It's not, uh, it's not so much as balancing the gospel, but it's more about filling it out and drawing out the implications of what it means to know Jesus and to follow him and to be saved by him. Now, John is filling it out, but he is not filling it out in this kind of linear way. Uh, I guess like maybe you could say Paul uh, thinks a little bit more linearly, but he's not saying if you know the right doctrine, then you will believe in Jesus, and then you will love others as if these things happen in sequence. I think he's probably thinking a little bit more systemically and saying, you know, uh, the horizontal and the vertical dimension of relationship is all part of the same system, and you can't separate the two. If something is wrong with the horizontal dimension, then what it shows you is that something's also wrong with the vertical dimension. Loving God and loving one another or walking in the light and practicing the truth, as it says in our passage, they always go together. And so in verse 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You cannot have fellowship with God and walk in darkness at the same time. And what we'll see later on in the letter, walking in darkness is basically to hate uh, your brother or your sister. Now, therefore, <clears throat> you will know whether you have fellowship with God based on whether you are practicing the truth. And if you are not practicing the truth, then it could very well mean that you don't have fellowship with God. Now, apparently, that's probably what some people were saying in this community. They were claiming to be in fellowship with God while also treating others within the community poorly, uh, with hatred. And John is saying, you can't be in the light or be in fellowship with God if you aren't in fellowship with one another and if you hate your brother or sister. Now, by the way, I don't know if you picked up on, uh, on this, but you know the verb that's used as it relates to truth John says, uh, you do not practice the truth. He doesn't say, know the truth or believe in the truth. He says, practice the truth. Western conceptions of truth tend to be uh, intellectual and cognitive. But the way John uses truth goes beyond cognition. For John, truth is about reality. It's about a way of life that is lived. It's not about intellectual assent, but it's about something that believers do. For our community in particular, uh, I would think we probably measure spiritual growth and progress based on uh, how much Bible we've read or based on how much Bible we know or studied or how much time we are spending in prayer. And to be sure, those are important things. But based on what John is telling us, we also need to include in that aspects of practicing the truth, which in this context means love. Are you doing acts of love or are you walking in the darkness by hating others? Are you building up or are you tearing down? Are you looking to serve or are you looking to exploit? Are you protecting and defending or are you gossiping and slandering? Are you trying to be understanding or are you trying to justify yourself? To be sure, there are much many more questions that we can ask, but when we reflect on how we are doing spiritually, uh, those kinds of questions should also be in there. How are we doing in love? John also seems to connect walking in the light, fellowship with one another, and the cleansing of our sin. And you see it at the end of verse 7, but you also see it at the end of verse 9. Uh, but I'll start reading from verse 8, and this is what he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, some were saying that they have no sin, and that ultimately is rooted in some kind of self-deception and theological error. But John, what he's doing here is he's prescribing confession of sin so that we can experience the forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. And when we deny our sin, what it actually does is it ends up leading to greater enslavement because of the little toxic prison that we create around us that we can't get out. Nobody wants to do it because confession is hard, but confession is ultimately the best way out. Otherwise, what you have to do is you have to continually hide or you have to continually deny or you have to control the narrative until someone else exposes you and destroys you. Now, I do, I do want to pause for a minute and talk a little bit about the context of race and racism. And uh, I'm going to actually try to do that as we go through 1 John, uh, because what I said is I want us to go through 1 John with the, uh, the things that are going on uh, in our country right now, um, uh, in our minds. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, I'm, I'm pretty tired. And uh, the reason I'm tired, I've been in Zoom classes all week. Uh, I'm working on a, a degree, and this week was a my, my cohort week. So I've been in Zoom classes all week and uh, we've been talking about a lot of these things and the complexities of, uh, you know, race and the interplays of all those, you know, just basically everything. So I'm, I'm actually quite like mentally drained and exhausted. And I know some of you are thinking uh, about questions because not, I know not everybody here is an Asian American, but uh, most of you are, and you're thinking about questions like where do Asian Americans fit into some of these conversations on race? Uh, if you're Asian American, I'm sure you're probably thinking, well, what is, what is my role? What is our role? How complicit are we? How responsible are we for our own complicity? And right, it just gets really, really complicated and complex. And I think we're trying to figure some of those things out, uh, which is one of the reasons why we have these Wednesday meetings where we can just talk it out and kind of uh, process some of these things together. Uh, but uh, I guess if I take a step back outside of just our own church and our own community, uh, what does seem to be emerging within Asian American communities is that uh, this conviction that, you know what, Asian Americans can't just be on the sidelines anymore when it comes to issues of systemic injustice. Um, I had a, a, an Asian American classmate of mine, and he was saying this week that for his church, uh, it was actually the fact that uh, one of the police officers who stood by uh, during the killing of George Floyd uh, was an Asian, uh, I believe he was Hmong, that uh, personalized it for people in his church. And I guess in a very visual way, they saw the consequence of seeing injustice being done and not doing anything about it. And it was personalized for, for them. And so uh, they felt this conviction, that, you know, it's time to stand up and kind of join the, the conversation and join the fight against uh, systemic injustice. Uh, now, <clears throat> whether or not uh, you agree with that or you share that conviction or you see yourself as complicit to, um, you know, racist systems, uh, I think at the very least, all of us would probably agree that we have not done enough to love people, right? Uh, specifically, the kinds of people that Jesus seems to care for, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, those who are poor. Uh, and as I mentioned in our prayer of confession, theology actually gives us categories of sin that give us room to confess some of these things. Uh, you have sins of commission, things that you do that you shouldn't have done. If you were a jerk, if you uh, said something you shouldn't have said, if you 
uh, tore somebody down, uh, whatever it is, like those are things that you confess. And usually those are the things that are on the forefront of our minds. But there are also sins of omission that we are accountable for, things that you didn't do that you should have done. Maybe you should have loved more. Maybe you should have served more. Maybe you have should have protected or spoken out or whatever it might be. But those are the things that we are also accountable for. Now, <clears throat> probably if, uh, if there is complicity in these racial systems, then uh, probably it would fit in that latter category, sins of omission. And if some of these things are coming to light, uh, you know, maybe the immediate reaction is to, to be defensive or to say that's not true. Um, but I think this passage is showing us uh, whenever we are confronted with a sin, whether uh, sins of omission or sins of commission, there is no need to deny it. There is no need to hide it. And there is no need to cover it up because what that ends up doing is enslaving us more. Um, what that also does is it makes God to be a liar. The ultimate way to freedom comes by way of confession. Now, I guess the practical question is, how do we do that? How do we um, practice confession? You know, in our tradition, we don't have the practice of actually naming our sins to a person out loud. So in the Catholic tradition, some people might go to a priest and confess their sins. Now, I'm not Catholic, so I obviously don't agree with the theology behind that. But uh, in terms of a practice, I don't think confessing our sin out loud to a person is such a bad idea. Uh, I see some actually uh, you know, spiritual benefit to that. Uh, if we confess our sin silently, I don't know how much of an impact that will have on us, but I think part of bringing something to the light means you expose it for others to see, right? Now, I don't mean everybody to see, but at least somebody else to see. So when you name your sin, especially sins that in, in particular that uh, you are ashamed of or sins that really stings a little bit and you feel exposed and you feel vulnerable and you feel vulnerable or subject to a person's uh, judgment towards you, uh, it's like emerging from like this dark room into the light. And at first your, your light, uh, your eyes hurt because they're exposed to the light, but eventually you begin to appreciate the light for what it does because it allows you to see things clearly. I think that's what confession does. It, it hurts at first, but that will turn into the sense of freedom because eventually you come to a point where you have nothing to hide. You have nothing to be afraid of and you have nothing to lose and so I wouldn't suggest that right I wouldn't suggest you confess your sins to anyone and to everybody in the world but I do think it's actually a good practice to have somebody or one or two people in your life where you can verbally confess your sins for the sake of bringing something out of the darkness and into the light and I, I do think that is the way to freedom now what enables us to do that at all um, there's this wonderful promise that we see in the passage where it says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, uh, I know the Michael Jordan documentary got a lot of attention, um, but after that, there was a documentary on Lance Armstrong, and I don't know how many of you watched it. Uh, I saw it a couple weeks ago, so it's not really fresh in my mind. Uh, but the story of Lance Armstrong uh, is you know, it's really interesting. If anything, he could probably uh, testify to the fact that he created his own prison when he started lying about whether he was doping in uh, cycling. 
And uh, he said, you know, it started with one lie and then people keep asking you. And then eventually that turns into 10,000 lies. Uh, and then you kind of have to take it to the next level. And so he began to, you know, attack people who would accuse him and he brought lawsuits and all those kinds of things. And so uh, he, he's an example of somebody who really had a deep fall from grace. And uh, I think he's vilified and uh, so many people hate him uh, for, for what he did and for that period. Uh, but I was reading a few articles uh, based on that Lance Armstrong documentary. And, you know, they were saying that, you know, he didn't seem contrite and he seemed to see himself as a victim and he harbored uh, some bitterness. And then one article said something to this effect. It said, you know, Americans are a forgiving people. And if he would just acknowledge, honestly acknowledge, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. This is not what it says in this language. But if he were to just honestly acknowledge his sins, Americans would probably forgive him and embrace him again. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if Lance Armstrong believes that to be true. But if you know what's waiting for you on the other side of confession, and if you know uh, that what's waiting for you is actually forgiveness, then I do, I do think it kind of gives you a certain kind of encouragement or freedom to be able to confess your sin. And likewise, John is telling us, hey, what, you know what's waiting for you on the other side of confessing your sin is Jesus. Jesus who is faithful and just. Jesus who will forgive us and cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness because of his work upon the cross. And so uh, I don't know what kind of sins uh, folks here are wrestling with or struggling with or aware of, <clears throat> especially maybe those deep, uh, really shameful kinds of sins, or even if it's just uh, sins of uh, omission, things that you should have done and that you're being called out for that maybe you didn't do. Um, but uh, whatever it is, uh, whatever you feel convicted of, um, the key is to confess. And in confession, um, you will find not only a path towards freedom, and according to Psalm 32, a path towards blessing, but you will also encounter a God who is gracious and a God who is forgiving and a God who has cleansed us from all sin because of the blood of Christ. Let's pray together.